0: Alright, Let's see any announcements. This is Wednesday. Oh, Friday night is our late night prayer. Is that eight? What time does it start? Right? Eight o'clock. Eight o'clock, eight to thirty. Yeah. So, over in the prayer room. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else coming this week that. Oh, men. Saturday morning at eight o'clock upstairs. And is there anything else? Anyone have a website you want to plug or anything? <laughs> <laughs> Great, well, tonight we're in Hebrews chapter 11, one of the most memorable and, and significant chapters in the Bible, it's the passage that is generally called the Hall of Faith, it's the list of all those heroes of the faith. And <clears throat> I think this chapter is, besides being interesting and giving us a little survey of the history of God working through people in the Old Testament, I believe that this chapter is one of the most radical and earth-shattering chapters when it comes to what does God want the life of the believer to be like. This is the kind of passage of Scripture that if you really understand it, and I I would venture to say I, I think most people don't have a clue of what Hebrews 11 is about. Frankly, I think most pastors don't have a clue of what Hebrews 11 is about because I've listened to a lot of sermons on it. I've read a lot of commentaries on it and and it doesn't fit with the context and it doesn't really add up. You almost have to squint in order to make sense out of Hebrews 11 in a way. And so people do that and talk about the bold faith of these heroes. But I think that the truth of Hebrews 11 is something that will make or break you as a Christian. I believe that the truths that we see in this chapter, the keys, the clues that we see in the lives of these people can cause us to undergo a radical change of thinking in our lives, a real, you know, the, the buzzword would be a paradigm shift, just an understanding of life and and Christianity in a completely different way. And I believe that's what Hebrews is trying to do. I believe that throughout the book of Hebrews, what Paul is trying to do is reorient us to a different way of thinking. To put this chapter in context before we dive into it, let's remember what we've seen up until now. The point of the book of Hebrews, as it goes, is saying, God, well, the book starts out, God who in sundry times and divers manners spake in time pass unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And so he's saying, God dealt with people on one level in one way, but understand this, Jesus is here, Jesus has come, and now this is a whole different deal. And then we read through all of those chapters leading up to chapter 11, and the emphasis over and over again is old covenant, new covenant. Old way of doing things, new way of doing things. And the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant, which was a covenant of following rules. And we've seen, he he points out, there was nothing wrong with the rules. What's wrong is that people aren't capable of following rules. Now, I don't think there's anything more human than wanting to follow rules, following directions. We seem to have something inside of us, and my suspicion, and I could, if we had the time, I could back it up with a lot of scriptures, but my suspicion is this drive that we have to be followers is something that is a mixed-up combination between the image of God and the desire that we have to walk with him, but secondly, and probably more pronounced, it's the result of the fall. It's the result of us losing fellowship with God and now trying to earn it back. And it's the one thing that's universal among human beings is that they try. you put human beings together and they come up with a bunch of rules. They build a religion, a religion of following after steps in order to reach God. So when the law was given, and by the way, it's not something that God originally intended to do, but it's something that he offered to the people in order, because they were desiring to do the right thing. And so he gave them all these rules that no one could possibly ever follow. And then he said, okay, here you go. You want to be righteous? You think you can do this? Here's the rules. Follow them. And they responded in, in just a, an amazing burst of overconfidence and arrogance by saying, all that the Lord has said we will do. And you know, ever since then... Even in Christianity today, as people have, and the point, as he was writing Hebrews, he was addressing people who had come, who had seen the law fulfilled, the veil was rent, they could come before God, and yet now they were starting to want to go back into a life of rule keeping, a life of legalism. And he warned them time and time again, if you do that, you're leaving Christianity. That's how important this is. And so we have a situation where the law was supposed to show you you couldn't follow the rules, but instead it made a bunch of arrogant people who thought they did follow the rules. Like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, just obey all the commandments. He said, I've done that since I was a little kid. What? Not if you listen to Jesus' commentary on the Ten Commandments in Matthew 5, that's for sure. You've never looked after a woman to lust after. You've never said that you hated your brother. You've never thought to do evil. No, the law is there to convict. And so again, the book of Hebrews comes along like the new covenant that Jesus introduced, the new commandment that he gave, the commandment of love, to say, you can't follow the rules. And yet, Even as Christians, when we understand that, when we have read Hebrews and we know that we're not under the law, but we're under this age of grace, ironic thing, a lot of the people who really talk about the age of grace are people who are hyper dispensationalists, who divide up history and say, Okay, God dealt in this way at this time, and then he shifted gears and dealt in this way. And there's some truth to it, but, the funny, but what they do is ultimately, and for instance, they don't believe that some of the spiritual gifts are active today because they say that was a different dispensation. The funny thing is, they end up in a situation where they say we're in the age of grace, and yet you don't see grace. The, the return is always to the law. Pastor Chuck often jokes around about how it's really funny that churches that call themselves faith, they don't seem to have much faith. They're depending on your faith for you to give them your money. And churches that call themselves grace are some of the least gracious people you could ever come in contact with. And it's just one of those funny ironies of life. But now, coming to Hebrews 11, we're confronted with the fact that we as humans have a tendency to follow to want to follow rules. We want to be righteous, and we want to do it on our own. You know, When when you're a little kid and your parents start helping you with something, you get to a point where you go, no, I want to do it myself. And that is the danger of Christianity when we start to think like that. I don't know about you, but when I'm going to go to someone's house nowadays, I get the address, and I don't trust them for directions. Because people seem to be incapable of giving you directions to their house. Oh, it's not the 2nd Street? I thought for sure it was the... Se- oh, that, that's not really a street. That's an alley. And you, oh. So what I do, I get the address, and I get onto the computer, MapQuest.com, and I pull up the map. But MapQuest has something that's really dangerous, and that is the step-by-step instructions. <laughs> and very, many times... And I prefer that, that's the way I am. My directions, I'd like to go, okay, get on this street, get off on this street, turn left at the third street, look for the pink house, turn right. I like to get places that way. That's the way we're all built, I think, in some ways. But but the trouble with MapQuest driving instructions, for one thing, I've seen several times when they were wrong, they said left and it should have been right. But, in, and I don't know if they do that on purpose, somebody that works at MapQuest is just, this will be funny. I used to do that when I was a kid and I worked in gas stations. I would give tourists interesting directions how to get places. But, oh, sorry. I I wasn't a Christian, if that makes you feel better. But I still think it's funny today, and I am a Christian. But um, what happens with those directions, if you get off, I mean, you're following them, and all of a sudden... You keep going and going, and and there's no street named Poliario, and you're going, what? What is this? Once you miss one step, whether it's their fault or your fault, you're lost, you're done, and you go, why didn't I look at Thomas Brothers? Why didn't I look at the map, too? Why didn't I get the big picture? But we tend to be people who want to follow, do this, then do this, then do this. Jesus said, don't you know if you violate one point of the law, You've blown it all. You're guilty of all of it. And that's the problem with legalism. It's great if it works. But once you mess up, what do you do now? You're lost. You're out there. You're completely confused. Now, that brings us to Hebrews 11. And this is the section. Hebrews 11, 12, and 13 will probably take a week on each of them because there's so much there. And those three chapters are about the three virtues that you see in 1 Corinthians 13. Now abideth faith, hope, and love. Hebrews 11 about faith, Hebrews 12 about hope, and Hebrews 13 about love. So that gives you a little outline in your mind. Here we have the chapter on faith, and it begins by defining faith. And if you ask most Christians, what's the definition of faith? If they've been to many classes, if they've read many books, almost to a person, the definition of faith, Hebrews eleven one, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's our little puppet parrot answer to the definition of faith. But do we even know what that means? Does that really help us to define faith? Well, here, after defining faith, then he goes on to give a bunch of examples of faith. But faith is the substance of things hoped for. That word substance is an interesting word. It, it's a, it was a scientific word. It, it, the word is hoopostasis. It's, it's a combination word that means that which resides underneath. It's really kind of saying this is basic, this is foundational, this is the blood and guts, this is the meat and bones of anything. An interesting, by the way, an interesting, it's only used about four times in the New Testament. One of them is in the book of Hebrews, and it's translated strangely, but it kind of helps us to see it. Back in Hebrews chapter one verse three, talking about Jesus, it says, "Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high." You don't see the word substance there. You don't see the word foundation. You don't see the word. Interestingly, is the word that's translated "person" in Hebrews one three is this same word, hypostasis, And, and so what he's saying is that, he, that Jesus Christ is the brightness of the glory of God and the express image of his, and perhaps a better word than person, there would be substance. He is the, when you boil God down to his essence, that's who Jesus is, the rubber stamp of that. And so faith is the basis, the foundational support of the things that are hoped for and then the evidence of things not seen. That word there for evidence is a legal term. Uh, That's why they translated it evidence. It's proof against someone or proof for someone, just like we would use evidence. So he's saying in a scientific way, faith is the substance. It's what's left over when you boil it down, it's what lies behind and underneath. You know what you hope for, what you're desiring to see happen, what you're looking forward to, really the future. It's the substance of the future. And then it's the evidence, the proof, of the things that you don't see. Now, I read a quote from Oswald Sanders that I thought was pretty good that helps to make this a little clearer. And what he said is, Faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as present and the invisible as seen. I'll read that again. Faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as present and the invisible as seen. See, two things that we look at with a lot of skepticism and with a lot of um, ambivalence, really, things that are yet to come and things that we can't see. And so what he's saying here is faith is really the thing that is the answer to the future. It's the reality of the future. And it is the proof of that which you've been told about, but you can't really see it. You think you don't have evidence, but the faith itself is the evidence. Faith, that belief in God, that trust in God, that, that response to God when he speaks is as he says here, that's the substance of what we're looking forward to, and that's the proof of what we don't see. I know that's not completely and entirely clear, but it becomes more clear as we, as we read on. He says, For by it the elders, that is the guys in the past, obtained a good testimony. So by faith, that was the only way anything good was able to happen in the lives of these heroes that we're going to look at. And he says, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed, or constructed, by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So now he lays this sort of foundational thing to help us to understand, and he says, basically he takes us back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The word created there, bara means to create out of nothing. It's a different word than you would use to construct something by using parts. And so what he's saying is, do you believe Genesis 1-1? Because that's where it all starts with faith. Now, if you can believe that God can make something out of nothing, then what does that do to your view of the future? What does that do to your view of the present? If we worship a God who can make something out of nothing, do I have to worry about what's happening next week? Do I have to worry about what's going to happen in my life? If God's promised to take care of me, do I have to worry about the fact that the prospects don't look very good right now? No, of course not, because he is the God who creates something out of nothing. He's the God who can go like that. It's by his word that the whole universe was created. So why worry about tomorrow? And not only that, why worry about today? Why worry about right now? a God who can make something out of nothing, then he exists even in the nothingness. He exists in places that we don't know anything about. And he can work in an invisible way. And so in my life today, I may be frustrated. I may feel like God's not doing anything. But remember, we worship a God who is the God of the invisible. He can make the visible visible. And so the point here is (coughs) understanding faith Means realizing that right now there are things going on that I have no idea about. There are things that God is doing that are just beyond my comprehension. And there are things that He's going to do tomorrow and the next day that are just going to blow my mind. And faith is okay, God, I'm going to believe that you are the God of the invisible, that you're the God of the future, that you created the world in six days by your word out of nothing. And so, therefore, you don't need me, and you don't need anyone else, and you don't need money, and you don't need buildings, and you don't, you don't need anything in order to work out what you want to do. You created the world out of nothing. You can create money out of nothing. You can create solutions out of nothing. And so the walk of faith is the walk that says, God made all this. I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. I don't see what God is doing right now, but I trust him that he is working even right now. And that's kind of his little introduction to faith. Now, we're going to now look at examples of people of faith. And if I wanted to sugarcoat the story, I could make these heroes look like heroes. I kind of rebel against calling them heroes, but they are heroes in a way. And he talks about them in that way. So I'll acknowledge that. But let's look through them quickly. And we're going to see. We'll remind ourselves of what some of these people really like. And look at what God seems to give them credit for. And we're going to uncover something that's disturbing. And that is that these people aren't much. Most of them aren't much to look up to. Some of them are people that we look at and go, you got to be kidding me. That's the best you can do? But as we look through these stories briefly, I don't want to get too bogged down, then I want to go back through and let's see if we can figure out what the thread is that goes through these people that caused God to say, Hebrews 11, let's throw this guy, this guy, this gal, this gal, this guy, this guy, and let's build the story that's going to give people a picture of what faith is all about. And I'll give you a hint right away, okay, going in so that you can be watching for this. What I see, and and this is something that really just hit me this week in studying this passage, but what, what just knocked me over like a ton of bricks is that Old Covenant is following rules. The danger of in the New Covenant is turning it into rules, is turning it back into legalism. Now check this out. As we look through these people, to me, the common thread that I see, among other things, these guys all broke the rules. These were all the kind of people who did the unexpected, who went against the flow. In fact, well, I had a professor in seminary. He's gone to be with the Lord now, Charles Feinberg, one of the top Old Testament scholars ever, and just an incredible man of God. He dedicated me when I was a baby to just an awesome scholar. But he said when we were in Genesis in my Hebrew class, he said, in the beginning there were two people and they took a vote, and it was unanimous, and they were both wrong, and the majority has been wrong ever since. And, and that's a problem for us because we believe in democracy and all, but it, the truth will bear that out, certainly. And these were people, I think you're going to see this as we go through it, I'm not going to skew it for you, it's just, it just jumped off the page at me, these guys all went against what conventional wisdom would say, here's the law, here's the rules, here's the way to do it. Much like Jesus did when he was always getting in trouble about the law and he wrote the law. And yet when they would bust him for violating Sabbath laws, he would say, come on, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He'd throw something out there like that and go, wait a minute, if you take that precedent, what would happen if you apply? He didn't care. He didn't worry about where people would take that. He was more interested in rocking the boat and in being kind of an iconoclast in a way than he was in in giving us nice, clean-cut rules by which to live. And I believe that the New Covenant says we live by seeing the map, getting the big picture, listening to God's voice, obeying what he tells us to do. It's not about following the rules. In fact, sometimes when you do what God tells you to do, you might have to break some rules in the process. You're kidding. Well, let's look at this passage, and then, and then I'll come back, and you'll see it, I'm sure. It'll, it'll jump off the page at you. Well, maybe not. I'll, I might peel it off the page for you. But <clears throat> The first guy, Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. Abel gets in the hall of faith. What did Abel do? He sacrificed what he had. It was his animals. Poor Cain, he had vegetables. I mean, he offered what he had. Both guys bringing what they had, but God accepted Abel's sacrifice. And he didn't accept Cain's sacrifice. And then Abel gets killed. He doesn't really do much. I don't see why just bringing a sacrifice one time puts you number one in the hall of faith. But that's what happens. Let's read on. He says, By faith Enoch was taken away, so that he did not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Enoch got in here and never really didn't write any books, didn't really accomplish much of anything. It says that he walked with God simply, and then he got raptured. That was it. God was pleased. I mean, compared to a lot of people who did so much more, Enoch didn't accomplish much with his life. And yet it says God was pleased with him. And all we know is that he walked with God. We know almost nothing else about him. Now he says, a little parenthesis, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So he says, God, this is important. You know, you may be going, okay, oh, Abel, Enoch, (sighs) evidence of things not seen, whatever, you know. And, and, And now he's saying, understand this. Without the faith, if you miss the point of what I'm trying to demonstrate to you right now, you will not please God. You can't. For whoever comes to God needs to believe that God is, but it's so much more than that. The demons believe that and tremble. But you need to understand that God rewards those who diligently seek him. You don't just meet him and say, okay, I know him. But he says God is a rewarder of people who just go nuts after him who aggressively pursue him. God is seeking us, but he is a rewarder of those who will seek him, who will look for him in places that might be surprising, who will continue to seek him after they've found him. But he says, hey, if you knock, he's going to answer. If you seek, you're going to find him. And, and that's, what the, that's the importance of faith. So he's saying, I'm already boring you with the old stories, but understand this. This is all about pleasing God. If you don't get this, you don't get God. You will not please him without faith. And so then he says, by faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah built an ark. But God came and spoke to him personally and told him, it's going to rain. The world is going to be covered in water. Everyone's going to die unless they're on an ark. So what do you do? You build an ark. Did it take faith? People were making fun of him probably. He's building an ark. Nobody really knew what an ark was. You give him a little credit. But again, who did he save? Just his household. What did he do as soon as he got off the boat? End up The first thing he did, planted a vineyard, got drunk, became disgraced. And he's in the hall of faith. Well, maybe it gets better. (laughs) By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promises in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So it says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place, or the Chaldees. And to go to the place that would receive the inheritance, the Holy Land, the Promised Land, Israel. But when we read the story, we see that Abraham really did much less than what he was supposed to do. God said, leave your land, leave your father, leave your relatives, and go head west to Israel. But as we read the story, we've already been through it in Genesis. He didn't leave his dad. He took his dad with him. He didn't dump off his relatives. He took at least Lot and you know, his crew with him, and it caused him enormous problems. And he didn't go west. He went north. He didn't head to the land he was supposed to go. He didn't go there until later after his dad died. And after Lot was at Sodom and had to be delivered, I mean, it took years for him to get around to doing what God told him to do. So what, what's up with that? Well it goes on to say by faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised What? Sarah had faith? Remember what she named the kid? Laughter. Because it was a joke. The angels came said Sarah's going to have a kid. Abraham laughed, Sarah laughed. Abraham's going, I'm 100, Sarah's 90. She's been way past the childbearing age. What are you talking about? And yet here in Hebrews 11, it says that she had all this faith. Verse 13, all of these up through Abraham all died in faith, Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were assured of them, embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And so then he says, but now they desire a better country. They went out from a country. They want a better one, a heavenly country. So God isn't ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. He's saying they had a sense somehow that this world wasn't their home. But now he says, well, let's get back on the thing. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Interesting choice of words, his only begotten son. It lets us know that when the Bible talks about Jesus as being the begotten son of God, it's not talking about his physical offspring, because Abraham had Ishmael before he ever had Isaac. And so it's a term of position rather than of of genetics but but the point about Abraham here is that yeah he went and sacrificed his son now I will grant you that's amazing faith the most amazing perhaps picture of faith that the Bible has to offer but let's put it into a common-sense perspective I mean it doesn't isn't the basic law of God doesn't it say you don't kill people wouldn't there be a word from the Lord that human sacrifice isn't the way to God even protected Cain after he killed Abel so nobody could kill him. God said, hey, if a man shed blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And so here you have a guy who becomes a hero by being willing to kill his son. Does that really make a lot of sense? Is that, is that faith? If somebody came into our body tonight and said, God told me to go kill my son, would we say, go for it, brother? That's faith. Or would we say, you're nuts? My father at one point, who was mentally ill, believed that God told him to sacrifice my mom. And he took her off to a little motel room, and he had the knife, and he was waiting to bring it down on her because he knew God told him to do that. My mom was praying, and God just stopped it. My dad never mentioned it again. He dropped the knife, took her back home, and that was the end of the story. But would you say, wow, what a lot of faith? You might. You might say, that's great Faith. But that's really pretty stupid, too, to violate what God was, you know, you know all of God's laws because God told you to. Um, it's, it's faith, but, boy, you know, we wouldn't give him a medal nowadays, that's for sure. And then it says, and it, well, it says that he knew that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Verse 20, by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. What? By faith, Isaac remember how the blessing happened? <laughs> how can you say that's by faith? It was it was a con job, an absolute con job. You know, you had Jacob and Esau, and Jacob put a piece of hairy fur on his arm, stunk himself up so and pretended to be his brother, and therefore got the blessing. Esau got what was left over. Now that was by faith. Ah, that was strange. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. That was kind of a strange thing, too, because Jacob actually, you know, blessed the guys in the opposite order, you know, remember. And so that was kind of a weird story. But, I mean, of all the things that he did in his life, is this one that you think is the one that's worth mentioning? Blessing these two kids? It's the big deal there. By faith, Joseph. Now, here's a guy, Joseph. He did... Amazing accomplishments. But by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. So Joseph said, take my bones to Israel. That's how he got in the hall of faith. (laughs) Verse 23. By faith, Moses when he was born, was hid three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. They were not afraid of the king's command? Have you even, Paul, have you read the Old Testament? They were afraid. Again, what do we say to somebody today who, oh, they're kind of concerned that their kid might be in danger. You know, they might hear about all the bad things in the public schools and plans that the government's doing and all this stuff, and so they're so afraid that their kid is just going to be corrupted, that they take their baby and they stick him in a basket and they go down to to Dana Point Harbor and they float it out into the water to protect it. Are we going to give them a reward somehow? Are we going to give them a, a plaque? We're going to say those people should go to jail for endangering their child. Moses' parents get put in the hall of faith for it. By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." He left. he, He wasn't afraid. He despised the... No way. He was living in the lap of luxury in Egypt, and he killed the guy, and he found out they knew, and it says that he feared the Pharaoh, and that's why he took off and hid out in the desert for 40 years. That doesn't look like that great of an act of faith, frankly. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them, by faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land. But they had no place to go. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. It took faith to walk around a city seven times and honk horns, I guess, because you'd look pretty stupid if it doesn't work. But. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. So now this prostitute gets in there, where the only good thing that we realized that she did was she told a really good whopper. She told a lie in order to protect the spies. So she gets in the hall of faith for lying. And then it goes on, What more shall I say? For time would fail me, yes it would, to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. Now, something kind of stuns me about these guys. He just cranks them out. Some of them are seem like really lousy examples. And then you have a guy like David, who the man after God's own heart, who just gets his, his name thrown in here, but none of his exploits, nothing that he accomplished or anything. But think about these guys. Gideon, over in the book of Judges we read about Gideon. He was a guy that God told him, I'm going to use you to deliver the children of Israel from the Midianites. And When he found him, when the angel found him, he was thrashing wheat down in the wine press, down in a cave. Thrashing wheat, you crush the wheat up, you toss it up in the air, and the good stuff drops and the other stuff blows away. It only works when there's wind, and there is no wind in a wine press. But he was so afraid of the enemy that he was just lamely doing this. God tells him, I want to use you. And he said, who, me? What are you talking about? Gideon fought him all the way. And then, God, you know, when God was finally setting things up and he was gonna do it, Gideon was the famous guy that had the fleece who said, Okay, God, if you're really talking to me, now think about that. Gideon, who could be talking to you? This isn't a person, this is somebody that just appears, you're discoursing with him, but he's gone, if God, he knew it was God, but he said, Look, just to make sure, how about I'm gonna put this fleece out tomorrow? And let there be dew on the ground, but let the fleece be dry. And God, you know, like, try and ask God to do card tricks. And and so God does it, though. The next morning, turn off, the ground's wet, and the fleece is dry. And God says, okay, are we ready now? Gideon goes, "Um, tomorrow, could you make the ground dry and the fleece wet? Okay, fine. And, And he goes through all of these things. Finally, the last night before the battle... He's still going, God, I don't know if it's you. And God says, go down into the midnight camp. He goes down in there, and he hears these guys that just woke up, one of them from a bad dream, saying, I had this dream about this wheel plowing through the camp, and it was Gideon. And he goes, ooh, this guy knows my name. Okay, God, I guess this is it. And so finally then, after paring down the army, down to the last 300 guys, finally what he does is break lanterns and honk horns. And he gets in the Hall of Faith. <laughs> Okay. Of course, Barak, he was much better. Book of Judges also. Barak was a warrior who was such a chicken that when it was time to go to war, he tells Deborah, I'm not going unless you go with me. He's not going to go to war without a woman with his good luck charm, you know? He gets in the Hall of Faith, and Deborah doesn't for crying out loud. (laughs) Rahab did. (laughs) Samson, oh, yeah, he was a great guy. You know, here, he had all this potential, and he used his potential just for childish pranks, never delivering Israel, never winning significant battles, until finally in the end, after they had captured him, he fell for that stupid stunt where Delilah keeps, I mean, you think about Samson is going, what's the secret to your strength? And, and he, start, he goes, well, if you tie me up with new ropes, I'll be like any other man. He wakes up in the next morning, I'm tied up in new ropes. Now, doesn't he figure at that point, this chick's trouble, this, is, <laughs> this isn't a good idea? But he breaks the ropes, ha ha, it's really funny. So then he says, you know, well, you know, and he, they start playing these games. He's going, if you braid my hair in dreadlocks, then I'll be like everybody else. Now he's getting closer. He's getting to the hair. And he wakes up with this, you know, Jamaican hairdo. And and the guys are there to capture him. And doesn't he figure, Delilah, did you tip them off to this? Oh, no. And then finally, she starts crying and going, you lied to me. You're not telling me the truth. Why doesn't he say, look, every time I wake up, you got an army here trying to kill me. But he keeps going. Finally, he's so sick of it. That he says, okay, if you cut my hair, I'm like everybody else. And sure enough, he wakes up in the morning with a buzz job. And now he has no strength. They capture him. They poke his eyes out. And they turn him into a joke. Then finally, they bring him out to celebrate at a big party. And, well, you know, you've known the story since you were kids. He brings the house down. He kills people. Finally delivers Israel in his death. But even at that point, was he finally trying to do the will of God? He did pray. But what did he say to God? If you read it, there in Judges, he says, God, avenge now mine eyes. All he's saying to God on his best day is God, get even with these people for what they did to my eyes. And then he kills himself and kills them too. Got in the hall of faith for it. (laughs) It was a womanizer. What's he doing? Jephthah, he gets in the hall of faith. He's a guy who, after winning a big victory, says, God, I'll sacrifice the next thing that comes through the door. And his young daughter came through the door. That gets you written up. (laughs) David, David did a lot of great things. David wrote so many of the Psalms and everything. But let's face it, you know, when a pastor gets caught up in adultery, has an affair, everyone knows it, and then he's guilty of murder. Well, sorry, buddy, you just blew it. You're done. You're history and we often look at david and we think of david we think of bathsheba we think of uriah being killed so that david could cover up his illicit affair and his life basically ended kind of in disgrace his own son turning on him and so on but he got in the hall of faith and you know samuel samuel the guy who he he did a lot of good things but his kids were just a mess they completely took advantage of you know it, It goes on in the prophets, and it says, Through faith they subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourging, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn into they were tempted slain with the sword wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute afflicted and tormented of whom the world was not worthy they wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth and all these having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us so he says, they went through all of these things, and he makes this amazing statement in verse 38, talking about all of these heroes of whom the world was not worthy, saying they were too good for this world. The world was not worthy of them. That line always reminds me of a line on a song by Don McLean called Vincent, a song about Vincent Van Gogh, and he said, he said this world was never went, meant for one as beautiful as you. And that's kind of what he's saying. He's, going, he's painting this elaborate picture of these guys, And you think, wait a minute, when I read Hebrews 11 and when I compare it with the Old Testament, something's really off here. Something's really strange because most of these people, what they got in the Hall of Faith for wasn't that big of a deal. And they did other things that certainly should have excluded them. Pete Rose, one of the greatest hitters in the history of baseball, And by the way, as a kid when I collected autographs, one of the nicest guys I ever met in baseball, he's not in the Hall of Fame because he gambled. Now, there's so much money gambled, the people who own all the baseball teams all got their money by gambling in one way or another. And if you're gonna protect the morality of the game, I mean, you've got, a lot lot of the teams are owned by alcohol companies and things like that. It's, you look at it and go, they won't let Pete Rose in the Hall of Fame because he gambled. Now, he didn't gamble on his own team, didn't gamble against his own team, and things like that. And so, people, there's an uproar. But you know, you can kind of understand it if you want to keep things pure. But if you're going to not let Pete Rose in the Baseball Hall of Fame, then I say we kick most of these people out of the Hall of Faith. We edit Hebrews 11 and we go, hey, no way, man. All these people did something worse than Pete Rose, or most of them did. Now, that's it. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> back, back to the point that I was talking about in the beginning, putting this in the context of the book of Hebrews. Let's look at some of these people quickly and see what it was that got them here, what it was that, that illustrates through their lives the point that he's been trying to make throughout the book of Hebrews, the point against legalism, the point against living by rules and creating your own righteousness. So we go to Abel. Why did Abel kill an animal for a sacrifice? I mean, in the Garden of Eden, oh, they didn't eat meat. It was vegetables and fruit. And that was what ultimately man was created to be a vegetarian. Now later God condones eating meat, so if you're a vegan or something, you're not going to find that support in Scripture. Jesus actually ate fish with his disciples after he rose from the dead in his resurrection body, so uh, sorry. But for the most natural thing in the world for them would have been to make an offering of fruit and vegetables. A most cruel thing to do before the first murder, before death was introduced to the world, yeah, there was spiritual death, but to kill an animal would seem like such a cruel unnecessary thing to do i mean hasn't god always dealt with his people through trees wasn't even in the garden the tree of life the tree of the knowledge of good and evil all the other trees you can eat it was oh it was it was absolutely just fruit and that was the way they were living and now all of a sudden you got a guy who gets in the hall of faith because he kills an animal well, why? Well, because God told him to. At that point, would anyone possibly ever be able to make sense of why killing an animal for God would even make sense? He created the animals. Adam named them all personally. Cain and Abel probably grew up playing with the animals. And now all of a sudden, God says, do a sacrifice. And he had to decide whether he was going to do it or not. And I'm sure if they had taken a vote, the vote would have been let's try apples and oranges and peaches see if God will be happy with that they're much better looking I mean a nice fruit platter on one side with a little ribbon around it and you know it's just dear God you know happy Sunday on the other hand a platter with an animal that was killed blood dripping off of it and old John and you're going which sacrifice makes more sense well, we know which sacrifice makes more sense because it was supposed to be a picture of what Jesus would one day do. And that's why God told them, do this sacrifice. Even though, You know, a lot of times when I go speak places now, it seems like people are being really kind. They're making these huge gift baskets. And, I, you know, it's great. Usually by the time I get home, I eat all the candy bars and things like that, and I give the rest of the family the tea and coffee and things I don't like. But <laughs> usually there's some kind of fruit in there, or at least fruit juice or you know, Martinelli's or something. I have never yet had someone, after I speak somewhere, give me this basket and have a big slab of meat in it. It just, bloody meat kind of running down all over the mints. And it just, it wouldn't seem appropriate. And it didn't then either. But sometimes God tells you to do something and it might look like it's really messy and bloody and pagan. It might look like it's something that, Oh, come on, I have a better way of doing it than the way you want to do it. God tells people that in order to come to him, for instance, they need to acknowledge their sins and repent. Oh, but I can think of something better than that. Hey, just tell people of all the blessings they're going to get and don't ever use the word sin. But instead, let's just make it really user-friendly. Let's just make it really non-threatening. That's a better way to draw people to Jesus. But Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And he wasn't talking about praise songs of, oh, lift Jesus up, lift Jesus up. When he was lifted up, blood was running down. A crown of thorns was on his head. Nails were in his hands and his feet. He was dying, you guys. And when he was lifted up on the cross, that's what draws all men to himself. Well, it's not as pretty as a basket of fruit, but it's real. And because Abel got that, and that's all he ever did in his life, but he gave that picture. He was willing to do something that was, that was gross because God told him to do it. And I believe that's why he's in this chapter. We're obviously not going to be able to spend that much time on all these guys. Enoch. At a time in history when people were trying to do things for God, building buildings, constructing programs, performing wondrous works, the world was going to hell in a handbasket. It was awful. The flood was coming. It was. Uh, oh, the, you needed preachers. But you had a guy that instead of doing that, his heart was just to walk with God, just to be with him. And I'm sure there were people who going, Enoch, you need to do something with your life you need to make something of yourself. The Old Testament was full of people who did for a period of time, and there were certainly people who needed to know the truth, but he was a guy who, rather than to go and change the world, he decided, I'm just going to walk with God. That's it. And that decision to be devotional got him raptured. He pleased God, didn't accomplish anything. The world would never put him on a pedestal, reward him. We don't know anything good about him at all. But all we know is that he walked with God and that God was pleased with him and God took him. But nobody else was walking with God at that time. The whole rest of the world ended up dying in the flood. Noah himself was busy building an ark for almost 100 years. And like I say, as he came off the ark, he wasn't much. But Enoch, he just walked with God. It didn't matter what everyone else was doing. That's what he did. Noah. Imagine the ridicule that he endured to build an ark when there's no water. I mean, and so I do give him credit. He made a lot of mistakes later in his life. But the bottom line for Noah Is that he did something that made absolutely no sense? Why? Because God told him to. And everyone was against him. They all thought it was foolish. Put a bunch of animals in a boat, oh god, that's gonna stink like crazy. And and there's no water. What are you gonna do with the boat? But there are times in our lives when I'm glad we see this example, because God may tell you to start building a boat long before the water's there. And what are you gonna do? You're gonna listen to what other people say? And say, yeah, this doesn't make any sense. You're right. Are you going to listen to the naysayers who say, look, the way I feel the, the, that you find God's will is that first of all, you pray. And then you try to get a piece about it. And then you get counsel from other people. And then you write down the pluses and the minuses and you figure out, does this really, has God provided for this? Does this make sense? Are, is there confirmation from other people? We, we build this whole big structure. We have a set of rules. People have written hundreds of books on how to find the will of God, and if Noah had had any of those books, he wouldn't have built the ark. If he had been following anybody's rules, he wouldn't have done it. I'm concerned today that people are starting to run the church, and Christians are starting to run their lives by principles of management. People who, there are guys now who are the gurus in Christianity who don't have a clue about listening to the Spirit of God all they know is that they've run a big business somewhere. And so they've applied that to the church. And it works. You can get a really big church that way because you appeal to people who want to be told that, you know what? Church is just like your business. The way God does things, it's just the way a real good manager does it. And you have books like Jesus CEO that tries to make Jesus—seriously, that's the title of the book— it tries to make Jesus like he's the ultimate business manager. You know, and and always in Jesus even the great physician, or Jesus this or Jesus that. Jesus didn't do things the way everyone else did them. He broke all the rules all the time. I don't know of a doctor, an ophthalmologist anywhere today, that when they come across someone who's losing their sight, they spit in the dirt and rub mud in their eyes. That just hasn't been... Nobody's writing a Jesus physician book and saying, that's what you ought to do. Oh, you know, they, they've got it all figured out that Jesus would, would have eaten low carbohydrates or something. But no. And, and again, for Noah... He broke all the rules. He was willing to make a fool of himself to do what God told him to do. Abraham, oh, he didn't follow the way he should have. No, he didn't obey God precisely into the letter. But ultimately, although it would make more sense for him to stay in Ur and to stay with his family, and to be a leader there, that area of earth is a much better, more fruitful area than where God was taking him, ultimately. And he had a tough road to go all along the way. And, and then finally, ultimately, when he's told to sacrifice his son, he goes, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm going to do what you tell me to do. No one... Can you imagine if he had even told Sarah, hey, Sarah, I'll be back for a while, but you ought to kiss Isaac goodbye because I'm going to go kill him. I, I heard Don McClure say one time that, you know, Isaac wasn't a little kid. He said he may have been a teenager, and he said the way I figure it, maybe Abraham didn't feel so bad about sacrificing him. But he was actually probably in his early 30s. But certainly, we can agree, Abraham didn't follow the rules and he didn't take people's advice. Sarah, as she laughed, as she—can you imagine when God comes to you and tells you something and you laugh in his face? You go, oh, come on. It's ridiculous. God enjoys that kind of faith, that kind of a heart that says, I'm just going to tell you the way it is. I'm not going to play games for you. I'm not going to perform for you. This sounds ridiculous, God. David the man after God's own heart read the Psalms and see how many times he's frustrated with God he's angry with him he uses language that would make us blush but he was honest with him he was honest and most people would say shut up you know don't laugh at the angel of the Lord but she did that was where she was you go on and obviously uh now, how about Isaac blessing Jacob and Esau concerning things to come? Isaac was fooled. But at the same time, what would we have told him to do? Here you are, you're conned. You need to make this right. It's time to go to court. You have plenty of reason to appeal this decision this blessing you have plenty of opportunity to say hey there is no way the law says my oldest kid is the one who gets the blessing and we're switching it could he have done that I believe he could have and everyone would have certainly been advising him that way God knows Esau was certainly hey come on how about something for me can't you undo this but ultimately him being fooled was actually used by God. Him being fooled actually accomplished God's will. Now, does that mean it was right for them to con him? No. I believe that God could have done it in some other way and maybe wanted to do it some other way. But the bottom line is he realized, even when he blew it, God's hand must be in this. And I'm, and I'm not going to throw him out. I'm going with this. There must be some reason why God allowed this to go down this way. And it's that flexibility It's that desire to not focus in the past, but to have your hope in the future and to know that the invisible God can do amazing works and he will work this out. This is going to be okay. And that's where his faith was. Jacob, blessing each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. In his case, he again blessed the boys out of order from what they should have been. And even though his son had lined his boys up and said, here's the way you're supposed to do it. He said, no, here's what we're doing. And he did what was right because God was showing him to do it, even though it offended his favorite son, even though it probably hurt his relationship with at least one of his grandsons. People would talk about it probably for generations, and yet he knew what the right thing to do was. And and here a guy who had been a, a sneaky guy all his life, Who had been the ultimate con man yet when it came down to it finally he said God what you want here's the deal Joseph made mention of the departure of the children of Israel prophesied and gave instructions concerning his bones Joseph who would be buried in Egypt Joseph who was so popular in Egypt that there he was a hero in Israel he was nothing he was the spoiled brat who got sold into slavery when he was a little kid And now, in Egypt, he was the number two guy in the kingdom. And if you've ever been to Egypt or you've ever read National Geographic, you know the Egyptians made a big deal about death. That's what all the pyramids are about. If you just took all the Egyptian pyramids and you built them up and made a wall that was six feet high and five feet wide, that wall would extend from L.A. to New York. That's how much they put into building their pyramids. And Joseph would have had a grand one. And this sarcophagus and the attention and the adulation and the riches and everything that would be poured out, his name would be blessed forever in Egypt. And it still is, in a sense. And yet, he said, when, I, when you go back into the promised land, I want my bones to be taken there. I want to go where I know I'm supposed to be. I'm not going to go where it's successful, I'm not going to go where I get the attention. I'm willing to have my legacy go down the drain in order for God's glory to happen, in order for me to identify with the place that, where I'm supposed to be. And that tells us, no matter, you don't find God's will by what success is. You don't find it by what's really working or where I can get the most attention, or the most glory, or the greatest adulation. That, is, not, that is, is positively an impediment to finding the will of God. Jesus Christ left the very throne room of heaven, didn't hang on to his equality with God, but he emptied himself in order to become a servant and die the death on a cross. And sometimes that means for us, we need to leave something that's very successful in order to go somewhere that's bones and promise, and to believe that if God tells us to do it, that's what we're going to do. We don't figure out God's will based on the success formulas of the world. You can't do it that way. And Joseph didn't, and he gets credit for that. Moses' parents, again, who would have thought? Float your kid into the water, out into the Nile. And yet, they got to raise him, He ended up being used by God incredibly to deliver the children of Israel because they did something that endangered their child. But their child was going to die anyway if he stuck around. They didn't have a choice, but they did the best thing they could come up with, and it was kind of sneaky. It was sort of deceptive. It wasn't really a very good witness to the Egyptian princess who took him, and then Joseph's sister, I mean, Moses' sister mysteriously shows up, and, hey, I'll take care of it. It was all a con job, and you go, wait a minute. That's not, that would violate every principle of God's law. No, you don't lie. You don't bear false witness, but they took a chance. They did something kind of weird, kind of different, and it worked. All you can say is, it really worked. Should parents float their kids into the water? Uh, No, I don't recommend it. But they did, and it was so radical that God used it in a miraculous way. The same thing with Moses and his wandering out into the desert. You know, this puts the most positive spin on it you can, but the truth is, finally, Moses, 40 years after being a shepherd, could have probably come back to Egypt and set himself up. But finally, after all that time, after all those lessons, he decided to obey God. He didn't want to. He argued with him. He said, I'm not the right guy for the job. But ultimately, he ended up walking into the Pharaoh's house and standing up to the Pharaoh and speaking boldly the word of God. It took him over 80 years before he got around to it. But he got around to it and he finally did it. And God looked on, it, on the whole picture, even though he never got to go into the promised land. But he said, you know, when it came down to it, you did come through. You did do it. And no one would have thought that was a good idea. It's like taking a convicted murderer who's out hiding somewhere and telling them to run for president. And having them get on TV and say, you know, I've been a fugitive for 17 years but it's time for me to come out and acknowledge that it's, I'm the one that's going to lead America because I know what it's like to run from evil. I know what evil's like. I am evil. You, you, nobody's going to... The guy's just going to go to jail. It wouldn't have made sense, but he did it and it worked. The walls of Jericho falling down. <laughs> who would conquer a city with lanterns and trumpets? Who would, you, who would say, okay, it's time for us to go win a great victory? So let's just take the musicians and do it. Can you imagine if we had gone over to Iraq and said, okay, you know, there's all these guys that are fighters and they know how to shoot guns and everything, but you know what we really need is to hit these people with heavy metal. You know? <laughs> and if we just go up there and really crank it out, you know, let's just let's start, if we just start playing Led Zeppelin, they're, they're going to give themselves up. It's going to freak them out. You know, that's, musicians don't go to war. They stay back and entertain the troops and things like that, you know. But if you really need a, you know, if all of a sudden there's some guy out in the, in the you know, outside the church firing a gun everywhere, you're going to come in here and look for somebody who's a cop. You're not going to look for a guitar. You're not going to say, hey, Rick, get out of here. There's some guy shooting, you know. It's a, Rick's great at what he does, but, you know, that guitar is not going to stop a, a shotgun. And, and yet the walls of Jericho... They came down by a worship band. They came down by a bunch of people who were yelling and honking horns. Not the recommended way to do war. Might not have worked in Baghdad. I think those tanks and all that air assault, you know, the shock and awe worked better. But in this case, a dumb idea that worked amazingly. Why did it work? It was God's idea. He told them to do it. And often, God will tell us to do things that don't make sense so that he'll see. Do you believe that I can make visible out of invisible? Do you believe that I can work? Do you really have faith to say, I'll do something that doesn't make sense? I'll do something that's illogical or irrational? Because I would rather live plugged into listening to you than to live by the rules. The rule book, it's there. It's wrong a lot of the time. And faith is saying... I'll get outside the box. I'm willing to do something just simply because God told me to do it, no matter what people think. Again, Rahab, telling a lie. Theologians have argued ever since. Should she have lied? You know, there are even some people who say, it's okay that she lied because she wasn't a believer at that point. But then after she was saved, then she wouldn't lie anymore. But it's okay for a heathen prostitute to lie. But if she was a believer, it wouldn't have worked. Or, you know, they go through all these gyrations. The fact is, you can't make good, clean, ethical sense out of justifying her. You can't. Any more than you can say, the Bible says don't lie. And yet, to me, the people during World War II who lied to protect Jews and hide them in their attic, they're heroes to me. Do I understand? Do I justify them? I don't have to. Lives were saved, and they're heroes in the same way that she is. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't understand it. But we weren't created to live by rules. We were never intended to have our lives say, okay, give me all the facts and I'll figure out what to do. God wanted to work in our hearts, the new covenant. He wanted to give us a sense. Of, and I think that every one of us, when we look at what Rahab did, deep down inside our hearts, we go, it was the right thing to do that she did. Oh, but what about the rules? The rules weren't, you know, man wasn't made for rules. Rules were made for man to help man, but with rules there are exceptions. Oh, this throws our ethics just all into a quagmire, into a mess, but that's okay, because biblical Christian ethics ultimately refer to you listen to God and you do what he says no matter what people think, no matter what the rules say. Now, is there a chance that you're going to make a mistake when you do that? Absolutely. In fact, it's guaranteed. It's dangerous, in fact, but... You're going to make mistakes anyway. Following the rules is never going to work for you anyhow. So understand there's something beneath that. There's something above that. There's a higher principle. Just moving really quickly through the rest of this. I don't want to start repeating myself. But, you know, Gideon, ultimately, again, going to war in a crazy way, being not the real heroic stereotype guy, but he finally did what God told him to do, and God used him. The same thing with, you know, with Barak. He finally did go to war, and he finally won a victory. Samson, ultimately, he did destroy the people that God wanted to destroy. Jephthah, God used him. He was very stupid. David was a man, a great sinner, but a man after God's own heart. You know, and, and we can't change that. And David, ultimately, talk about a guy that fought outside the box, I mean, one time to escape, he pretended like he was crazy and started drooling all over himself. I mean, he, this guy, David was, he broke all the rules. You couldn't make a rule book for the way that David lived. He, he and his, his guys ate the consecrated bread that wasn't supposed to be eaten. And when Jesus' disciples picked food on the Sabbath, he pointed out what David had done as a precedent. Say, see, you can't break the rules if you're hungry. And you can put that over every diet you ever take. (laughs) Bottom line for all these guys, a couple of points and then I'm finished. Because we're out of time. Two big lessons I get out of Hebrews 11. One of them we haven't even talked about yet. But you may be upset that I'm putting down the heroes of the faith because I've ridiculed a lot of them. I've questioned their motives. I've said, basically, in a nutshell, I've said, they're not so heroic. And that may upset you, because maybe you just want to believe in heroes. But we have only one hero. People are not my hero. And when I hold them on pedestals, when I don't look at them honestly, when I build up fluff around them, all I'll do is set them up for a fall. Jesus Christ is my hero. And everyone else is flawed. They're all sinners. So, where does that leave us? It leaves us qualified. Because if God would use all of these people, God can use you. And if He sees these people and says, Oh, a guy like Samson, the world isn't even worthy of Samson, then God sees you the same way. And you say, How in the world could He ever see me that way? How could He ever see Samson that way? It's because He's looking through the filter of the cross. We've seen over and over again in Hebrews, God will not remember your sins anymore. So the story in chapter 11 of Hebrews about these Old Testament people is filtered through grace. It's filtered through what the cross accomplished. It's here's what these lives look like if you take out the sin and you can't remember any of those events anymore. And I appreciate that, but I I absolutely need it. You know why? Because my day today... I did some good things, and I probably did some things I shouldn't have done. I used some time wisely. I probably wasted some time. I was kind to some people. I might have been short with others. And if you stretch that over the last week or the last month, I could get pretty bummed looking at myself. But when God looks at me, you know what he saw that I did today? Only the good. And the things that I did with mixed emotions and mixed motives, he only sees the good motive. Like Moses wanting to, you know, be separated from Egypt because he loved his people and because they wanted to kill him. And me maybe doing something for someone that's, I feel like I ought to, but I also really want to. And God sees it and he goes, wow, you did that from a pure heart. Understand this, when God looks at you, and if you don't understand this, you'll never understand the book of Hebrews. You'll never understand the gospel, frankly. When God looks at you, he sees you white as snow. He sees you as pure as the driven snow. He gives motives to you that you wouldn't even impute to yourself. Why? Because of the man Christ Jesus who hung on the cross, who paid the penalty for your sins, who sprinkled his blood in the Holy of Holies, who ripped the veil in half, who said, come on in, guys, you're clean. I don't remember your sin anymore. The the warped view of Hebrews 11 is the real view it's not that God doesn't see some major things. He sees it as it really is. His people forgiven. And so a prostitute who's lying for who knows what reason, after God cleans her up, hey, she was a hero of the faith. A guy like Samson, his, you know, uh, just a A hugely strong man of great potential who never accomplished what he could have accomplished. He wasted his talent and his effort. He was a womanizer. Like I think somebody is, I think it was John Carson who said he was a he man with a she weakness. God looks at him. He forgets the girls. He forgets Delilah, the other gal that he was involved with earlier. He forgets all the pranks. He forgets the lies. He forgets the the foolishness, the dumb things that he did, the failure. And God sees him, and he only remembers the success. Oh, yeah, I remember Samson. (laughs) See all those guys he wiped out? And when God sees you and when he sees me, it's the same view. You could put your name right in there in Hebrews 11 by faith. Why? Because God is at work in ways that we don't see. And Jesus is at the right hand of the Father defending us at this very moment. And he paid the penalty for our sins and he says he won't remember them anymore. They're as far as the the east is from the west. Now the person next to you, if they've given their life to Jesus Christ, God sees them that way too. What an amazing world it would be if we could see each other the way God sees us. You know, it's one of the biggest blessings that you can ever have is to overhear someone saying good things about you. But it can be very embarrassing because you feel, oh, boy, you know, they're saying nice things about me. Maybe I hear sometimes my wife will say something nice about me and I'll think, boy, I'm just glad she doesn't give the whole story. You know, she kind of cleans it up for public view. Not really. If you know Anne, she doesn't. But for the, come to think of it. But, uh, but so often we do that and we think, but wait a minute. When God talks about us, he only remembers the good. He sees any little shred of evidence of faith. Faith is the, great of the, as the size of a grain of mustard seed. And he goes, yeah, you're my hero. Amazing. What if we started seeing each other that way? What if we started talking about each other that way? The only thing we could say about a Christian that we know is all the good things about them. They're they're my hero. What if we had that perspective? Radical. But the second lesson that I think we need to learn from this, and maybe it's even more profound than the first, and the first is, I used to think, was the main significant point, but the second lesson, I think, is faith means that you are willing to break the rules. Faith means that you are never going to allow yourself to live by a system, that you're never going to allow yourself to live by the steps, by by eight points or 10 ways or 12 things that you need, but that you go, you know what? I'm willing to break any rule if God tells me to. I'm willing to do something foolish that doesn't make sense. I'm willing to throw away my future I'm willing to sacrifice my possessions. I'm willing to do something that everyone would counsel me against if I am convinced that God is speaking to me. And that's what faith is. And so often when God is speaking to us, we talk ourselves out of it by being very logical and reasonable and democratic, and personally. I mean, as far as that goes, this is kind of a principle of life. People who are successful, ultimately, it's because they do stupid things. And they learn from them, and they build on them, and they stay flexible, and they keep... It, even without the Lord, living by the rules, makes you someone who is, a you know, you'll be wearing a name tag at your job, you know? And, and yet, those people who really... Sorry, I, that's stupid. I, but, you know, I'm thinking of... The jobs that require you just don't think. It's like if you go into McDonald's and you say, yeah, can I have a Big Mac, but can you put some of the sauce from the chicken sandwich on it? Oh, And sorry if you work at McDonald's, but it's like, they don't know what to do. Is that possible? Can we do that? Is there a rule for that? But I guarantee you, the guy that owns McDonald's thinks differently. I guarantee you the people who invent new things, who create new programs, who come up with fresh ideas, those are the kind of people who drive people nuts, who want people to be under the law and under the rules. And as Christians, it's no different. In fact, it's vastly more so when it comes to Christianity because God sent Jesus to turn the world upside down, to do things that surprised everyone. Now, let me just caution you That doesn't mean that every stupid thing you do is of God. It doesn't mean, you know, I really want God to use me, so I think I'll drive home on the other side of the freeway. That is thinking outside the box, but that's going to put you in the box. And that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, as God puts his law within our heart, as we meditate on his word, as we spend time with him, growing closer to him, beware that you don't get it figured out and boil it down to a set of rules. Because if you're listening to him and you're really hearing from him, he's gonna tell you to do some crazy things, I promise. And those crazy things are gonna work. God's gonna use them. Oh, sometimes they won't work and you'll find out, okay, I guess it wasn't God. But more often than not, to me, the greatest danger to the Christian life from the perspective of the book of Hebrews is not that you'll just get so far out of control that you'll break all the rules and you'll ruin the world. I don't see that as even being warned any time. But the warning is there again and again and again. Don't start thinking that this is another legal system. Don't start thinking that we exchange one rule book for another rule book. That's not the way it's going to work. This is a relationship thing. This is of the heart. And I'm telling you, the Christian life is incredible when you let that happen. It's not boring. It's exciting. You see things happening, and it's like, wow, who would have ever thought that would have happened? And you you see God at work. I have a friend right now who's on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa, and he heard that there were a couple people who wanted a Bible study down in Sunset Beach, down there between Huntington and Seal Beach. And he was driving through the city the other day, and he saw uh, on somebody's house they had like a Christian poster or something, And he had been praying, well, maybe I should go down there and start a Bible study. So he saw that sign. So he went over to the house. He goes and introduces himself. And this is the gal who called the church and said she wanted something to get started in Sunset Beach. And he was like, that's amazing. Out of all those houses, that's what happened? And a few days later, Joe, uh, Joe Pettick is his name, God told him. Now he has three families in his Bible study. God told him to leave his job at Calvary Costa Mesa and go minister to those three families. Stupid thing to do. Even his wife thinks it's kind of dumb, and she has great faith. And people at Calvary are telling him, oh, you know, you can still work here part-time, and do that part-time, you can do that, you can do that. It, there isn't, there's almost no one who's telling him good idea because it's not a good idea. But if it's God, then everyone's going to pretend like they were behind it all along. And the worst thing that's going to happen—it doesn't work out. The three families throw him out, and then he goes—he's back where he started from. Maybe if he can get his job back at Calvary. The point is, and I—and I don't mean to be laboring it, but I just think this is so important.